If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 39. Genesis 39, as we continue our study, and I have to say, just personally, I am missing the opportunity to do this in person. I found out this week that there is a real thing called Zoom fatigue. (laughs) It was in Wall Street Journal, it was in the BBC, and I kept wondering, like, why am I so exhausted at the end of each day, even though I'm not leaving my home? And it, there is this pressure of watching things through a camera or through a, a screen and like trying to transmit things through a camera that is uniquely draining. So uh, I miss our church family just because I miss our family, but I also just am really getting tired of trying to do this through video. But at the same time, this is so much better than the alternative. I'm so grateful that we have this chance. Uh, to actually study God's Word in this unique context. And so, for as long as the Lord lets us do it, uh, let's continue uh, to do it well and with excellence. So, Genesis 39 is where we'll be today, and I'll read this familiar story uh, for us as we work our way uh, through the message in just a few moments. But I need to begin by letting you know about a movement Uh, an industry that exists here in the United States primarily, but it also exists around the world. And it's pretty unique. It's got a religious division and a commercial division. Um, It's united, I guess, these divisions are united by the same principles, that they exist for the same purpose. And not only is this entity massive, but it is financially lucrative. And it literally pulls in hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And they want to ask you a few questions. Here they are. This is what they want to know from you. Would you like to know how to wake up and take control of your mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual destiny? Or would any of you like to develop the power to reach your goals? Do any of you want to break through bad habits and achieve a relaxed life? How about your finances and relationships? Wouldn't you like to see both those arenas improved by this point next year? Or would you like to go after the job you want and get it? Or maybe take the job you have and improve it? How would you like to be able to take any situation that you experience and make it work for you? You want a nicer home? More obedient children? A more chiseled physique? This industry and its two arms are probably more readily known as the self-help industry and the prosperity gospel movement. And essentially, they want to know if you want to be smarter, faster, healthier, sexier, and wealthier than you are right now. Even more simply, they want to know if you want to be successful. They want to know if you want to enjoy prosperity. All you'll need to do is pay a little money for their book their series, their seminars, their ministry, and then apply the principles of their teaching, and then your life will, or so they claim, change for the better. But before you respond to their offer, I need to tell you this story first. The story here in Genesis 39. Obviously, this story shows up in the middle of a book, And not just any book, but the first book of the written Word of God. So, let me bring you up to speed. Genesis recounts God's blessed creation of the world. The breaking of that world through human sin and the extended account of how he intends to put it all back together again. Now, what's interesting about the Genesis account is that God really does intend to put it all back together again. Physically, economically, emotionally, spiritually. He's going to reverse this curse It's one of the major themes of Genesis. And in the previous chapters, we've seen that God has promised to fix the world through imparting blessing in and through the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, that's what we see here in this 
section of the story titled The Generations of Jacob. You look back to chapter 37, verse 2 for that. We see how this promise of blessing uh, to and through this special line is already beginning to come to pass. Whereas the last chapter showed how this blessing would come to and through an unworthy man named Judah. This chapter picks up on how this blessing comes to and through another son of Israel named Joseph. Even amid intense hardship and misfortune. This story is a divinely inspired account of a guy who actually does succeed and prosper at the hand of God himself. And in this chapter in particular, believe it or not, God himself will reveal the secret of success. The secret of success. Within this account lies the divine secret of success. And I think that you should carefully consider God's plan for success before you buy into the worldly and religious alternatives. Now bear in mind, it's not stated as a principle, but it advances as a story, a story replete with hardship and difficulty and struggle and temptation and success. Six different times the text today will explicitly reference the enjoyment of success or blessing. What's better is that it not only points to the existence of success, but the story gives an explanation for it. The story not only answers the what question, Joseph is successful, the story answers the how question, how was Joseph successful? So see now if you can discern the secret of divine success for yourself as we revisit this familiar account. And I'll recap it for us at the end. Now this story of divine success falls into three unlikely scenes. One is uh, centered around enslavement, the other is around temptation, and the other is around imprisonment. Not normally what we think of when we think of success. But nonetheless, divine success is seen through enslavement in the first six verses. I mean, Note, like any good success story, Joseph's story picks up at rock bottom. I mean, back in chapter 37, we learned that Joseph was the favored younger son of a large family of mostly brothers. And on account of the special treatment that he received from his father and his unwise insistence that he was going to rule over his family, Joseph falls prey to the cruel designs of his older brothers. You remember that when Joseph's father sent him to check on his brothers while they were on an out-of-town work trip for the family shepherding business, Joseph arrives innocently, but as he's approaching, his brothers conspire to kill him in cold blood. They hate him that much. Yet that plan is foiled because one of the brothers ultimately decides that murder would be a waste as they could profit off Joseph's demise by selling him into slavery. So as luck would have it, Joseph is sold by his brothers to the Ishmaelites who then take him to and sell him to one uh, Potiphar, a high-ranking military official in Egypt. It's the superpower of the world at the time. So that's what happened in the last verse of chapter 37. We pick up on that story right here at the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt... And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So you see the story here resumes. And it's showing Joseph, though, however, from the very beginning, at rock bottom. He's been abused and betrayed by his brothers, torn from his homeland, and sold as a piece of property to a foreigner. He has no friends, no family, no financial prospects, no freedom. Joseph starts off this scene actually as the antithesis of success. But in the verses to follow, you're going to notice a full reversal in Joseph's misfortune. In just a few verses, everything changes. Notice the explanation of Joseph's meteoric rise in verses 2 through 6. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man 
and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house. And he put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. (laughs) This is amazing. Despite being sold into slavery, the text is so bold as to declare that Yahweh was with him. We've learned in previous parts of Genesis, especially Genesis 28, that the experience of God's presence specifically refers to God's presence to bless. I mean, technically, we know that God is with everyone insofar as he is present everywhere. But his disposition, his attitude toward everyone is not the same. See, this little phrase explains that Joseph enjoyed a special relationship with God on account of the promise made to his fathers. So note here how the author directly ties this explanation of God's presence to bless with Joseph's success. It says, God was with Joseph and he became a successful man. (laughs) There's an explanation for you. Get this. Joseph is successful even though, listen to this, he is in the house of a foreigner as a slave. While Joseph slaved away in this house, his master noted that Yahweh was with Joseph and all that Joseph did was successful. He accomplished the task given him. He fulfilled the responsibilities entrusted to him. And let's be careful to let the book itself define its terms. Success in the original Hebrew usually conveys the idea of accomplishing effectively what is intended. Accomplishing effectively what is intended. Besides describing human or divine action, the verb is also used with various subjects. Like, for example, a tree is successful insofar as it thrives, Psalm 1-3. Or a weapon is successful insofar as it prospers, it accomplishes its intended purpose, Isaiah 54-17. Or even a journey can be successful, that someone makes it to their intended destination. So what I want you to see is that Joseph is successful in the eyes of Potiphar insofar as he accomplishes the mission set before him. Like everything he touches turns to gold. He, he actually like checks off his to-do list, if you will. It's pretty amazing. But even on a greater level, though, Joseph is successful in the eyes of God as Joseph is bringing blessings on a foreigner. Do you remember that theme that's repeated all through the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That God would bless this line so that they would be a blessing to the world, to the nations, to the Gentiles. The budding nation of Israel would not only know blessing, but they would know it so that they could show it to the world. Blessing would extend to them and through them to reverse the curse on the world. And we already see a small picture of this happening in this one household. And so naturally, Joseph's divinely enabled effectiveness earns him the favor of this powerful master who in turn made Joseph the overseer of his household. In the ancient world, there were much softer lines between work and home. And so the household included the well-being of the family, the slaves, the business, the education of the children, the protection of persons and property, and the financial health of the home and business. If you want to think of what Joseph's responsibility here He's not a house sitter. He's more like the CEO of a sprawling family-owned business. Joseph was the personal assistant of one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. Don't miss the description of Potiphar. While he's not Pharaoh, he is either the head of security or Pharaoh's chief executioner. It says he's the captain of the guard. He's the one in charge of the military for a superpower at the time. And Joseph's in charge of this family-run business. The text repeatedly emphasizes, though, what's so interesting here, the totality of Joseph's success. Did did you notice when I was reading it, I was trying to emphasize the word all? (laughs) 
It says that his owner put him in charge of all that he had, verse 4, made him overseer of all that he had. Uh, God's blessings flowed through Joseph on all that he had, and then it adds, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. I mean, five different times it's referencing that Joseph is in charge of everything except for the dude's food, just, which is a figure of speech for his private affairs. I mean, he took care of everything. And so are you picking up on what the text is laying down? Is Joseph successful? Better question. Why was Joseph successful? Did you see the explanation behind his unprecedented rise? What was the secret to his transformation from rags to riches? It's there. It was plain. It was obvious. And I'll make it explicit again soon enough. But in the meantime, let's continue to learn more of this secret of success. And I want to let you observe it. We just observed Joseph's divine success through enslavement. Now let's look at his divine success through temptation. Divine success through temptation. The text shows us that Joseph's divinely enabled success also brings with it its own unique challenges and disappointments, as we all know success does. Just as God was with Joseph, though, even when he was a slave, this passage is going to make clear that God is still with Joseph in his temptation. And even in his false accusation. He's going to reach a moment of temptation here, and the the text paints a a very clear general picture. You look at the second half of verse 6, it says this, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you were his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Here we see that Joseph is not just successful vocationally, but he is successful morally. Too often worldly perceptions of success come at the price of one's integrity, do they not? But the success that Joseph enjoys is it's more rugged, more thorough, and as we'll see in a moment, it's more nuanced, it's more complex. The text portrays Joseph as a good-looking man. He's easy on the eyes, ruggedly handsome, which inevitably earns him the intention of Potiphar's desperate housewife. This woman is bold and assertive, and she's not looking for a platonic relationship, but an impure one. And think of this, Joseph, as a young man, and all the hormones involved with that, and a foreign place away from family, and all the opportunity involved in that, refuses her advances. That's what the text says, refuses. (laughs) Now, many a red-blooded American man wonders, how'd he do it? What's the secret? (laughs) Listen carefully to his response to her and see if you can learn the secret of his moral success. He says, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything he has in my charge... He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph withstands the regular temptation on the basis of entrusted responsibility. First, he recognizes that he has been entrusted with everything in the house except her. And because of that, he views this sexual sin as First, a breach of trust. Like he, he sees, like, I've been trusted with something different. When we have these expectations upon us, we want to live up to them. But the question is, though, why would he not breach this trust? Well, it's because he also views this sexual sin as a great wickedness. <laughs> it's a great wickedness. But why does he view this as such a great wickedness? I mean, no one's around, right? I mean, hasn't life treated him unfairly? Doesn't he enjoy a little bit of pleasure seeing he has no other real prospects for marital bliss? I mean, why not? He views it as evil because 
3, and this is at the root of it, he is aware of the presence of God. Joseph's success over sexual sin is rooted in an acute awareness of and affection for the presence of God. It's not an Orwellian, oppressed citizen in a police state, big brother is watching awareness of God's presence. But it's more like a kid who loves his dad showing up to his baseball game. My father is watching awareness of God's presence. Joseph's success over sexual sin is part and parcel, connected to his acute awareness and affection for the presence of God. So how does he succeed morally, spiritually? An acute awareness of and an affection for the presence of God. God is with him and he loves it. He, He follows up said awareness of and affection for God's presence with action in light of God's presence. Look at verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie with her, to lie beside her or be with her. (laughs) Joseph not only overcomes a fleeting temptation, but an ongoing one. And he does this, he follows up here with appropriate action. Like what he is hungry for, what he really desires, and what he knows and appreciates in God's presence, he follows up with appropriate action. It says that he wouldn't even be with her when he could help it. Now, friends, it would be easy here to digress from the main point of the passage and twist this story into a moralistic lesson on sexual purity. And to the men in our church especially, I would love to help you with this more. So I just want to say, if you belong to our church, I'd encourage you to join us for the Q&A to follow where I can draw this out some more. But, dear friends... While Joseph may be a good picture of overcoming sexual sin, this is not the author's point in the passage. There is no, Joseph did this, so go and do likewise. Instead of giving us a list to do in the face of sexual temptation, the text actually gives us a lesson to learn in light of sexual temptation effectively overcome. What we need to see here is Joseph's continued divinely enabled success. Don't lose the point of the story. And as we continue with the story, I want you to note how Joseph's success over temptation, here's the big deal, Joseph's success, he has a win here, actually leads to further perceived hardship or difficulty. Now to get us there, the narrator zooms in on the climactic victory over sexual temptation. And note again how this success is immediately rewarded. Here's the climactic act. This is like the the battle of the bulge. This is the big one. Verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and and, and, and fled and got out of the house. Now, Do you notice what's happening here? It seems that her advances grow bolder by the day. In God's providence, Joseph goes into the house to do some work, and none of the other male servants of the house were there. And humanly speaking, the intensity of this temptation is 10 out of 10. Knowing the house is empty, she attempts to disrobe Joseph and commands him to gratify her carnal desires. And with the equivalent of his shirt still in her hand, he gets out of Dodge. No. Get the picture through the appropriate cultural lens. Some clarity here will help you put together the misfortune that's about to befall Joseph. In that time and place, men wore that like they wore long tunic, tunics with the equivalent of a longer robe over top of it. So it, it would kind of be like the equivalent of uh, men today who would wear a dress shirt and then an undershirt. But that was the whole thing. It was the whole garment. There was an undergarment, there was an outer garment. There was a a dress robe, and there was an under tunic. Now, here's what you need to get. It's never, ever, in a million years, going to look good for a man's shirt, his outer garment, to be in the possession of another man's wife. Ever. And so in this situation, Joseph may escape with his purity, but he will not escape with his public integrity. By stealing his outer robe, it's going to be possible for Miss Potiphar to also steal his outstanding reputation. Now, pause for a moment. 
Because the verses to follow may provide one of the stiffest challenges to the modern conception of success. The doctrine of success being sold and propagated today preaches that integrity will always be rewarded. That doing good attracts good. As long as you think positively, it'll all turn out okay. But what does successful Joseph, the one with whom God resides, receive in return for this resistance to temptation? Defamation. And so we move here from temptation resisted to defamation rewarded. Look at verse 13. Notice what happens. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, And had fled out of the house. She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. (laughs) The old English play said it so well. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Miss Potiphar's smear campaign hinges on this supposed evidence of the ripped-off shirt. And so first she spins her story to undermine Joseph to the other slaves and employees. And notice how she does it. She appeals to him as a Hebrew. She tries to stir up this witch hunt through racial profiling. Here's this foreigner. Then she further claims that this Hebrew's sole purpose was to dishonor them and to belittle them. And what you need to keep in mind is that many of these other men had already been passed up for this promotion, right? They're already tempted not to look upon Joseph favorably. And now I'm sure they resonated dearly with her carefully crafted words. And having smeared Joseph among the household, she then sets up an additional step in her little ruse by constructing a scenario to deceive her husband as well. You need to remember, up to this point, everyone that heard this defamatory report was beneath Joseph in rank. He was at the top. For his accusation to be truly damning, Potiphar himself would have to be convinced, the guy who trusted him. So the manipulation and deceit is going to be painted on thick. Listen to verses 16 through 19. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. You see what's going on here? Potiphar's wife seeks to entrap Joseph further by laying his outer garment, his shirt, by her until the master of the household came home. And she sits there. She waits for him to show up. This is a masterful capacity for deception. I mean, friends, this is the equivalent of a teenage girl crying on the bed when her dad comes home with the repairman's shirt laid out beside her while while she claims that he tried to rape her. In that situation, who are you going to believe? I mean, she's got the shirt. Specifically here, she again emphasizes his Hebrew origin. Notice it, that this foreigner. And then she blames her wifely trauma, and note this, on her husband's foolish hiring decision. You did this to us. You caused me to almost get raped. I mean, no man likes to feel responsible for harm to his family. I mean, she is so manipulative. She's directly challenging his manhood. And twisting the knife even further, she even retells the rape incident, emphasizing the way that she just barely saved herself. If I wouldn't have screamed, I had to save myself, you know, that kind of thing. But to Potiphar, the thing that takes the cake is that this happened at the hands of his servant. That's what the text says. It says that when he heard this happen at his servant, his anger exploded like a raging fire. And now, listen to this, Joseph wrongly, bore the brunt of the wrath of the leader of Pharaoh's security detail, the chief executioner. This is not someone to be reckoned with. And so even though Joseph enjoyed Yahweh's presence, even though Joseph did the right thing, 
He was wrongly accused and his life was threatened. And in fact, he'll be thrown into jail, which is a fate worse than slavery. And such hardship in the face of such virtue makes you wonder, what kind of success is this? Has Joseph somehow fallen out of favor with God? Was the success just a temporary thing that kind of randomly comes and goes like a midsummer thunderstorm? Was Joseph's success amid hardship merely a temporary stroke of luck? I mean, if the story stopped here, the best we can learn is that success does not always result in favorable vocational or financial outcomes. And while this may be a lesson, the story is not itself over. The way that the story began, note this, will be intentionally paralleled in the way that the story ends. In verses 1 through 6, Joseph started off at rock bottom and then rose in success on account of God's presence. Here at the end of the story, in verses 20 to 23, the exact same thing will happen. There will be a rock bottom and then there will be another rise to success, indicating that Joseph's good fortune wasn't a fluke at all, but a foundational reality. So... Let's review. Joseph enjoys success through enslavement, through temptation. And finally, we'll see that Joseph even enjoys success through imprisonment. Note the rock bottom again in verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Is he not at rock bottom once more? I mean... For some unexplained reason, Joseph isn't immediately executed, but is instead thrown into prison with the others awaiting execution for defying the will of the king. And just as Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit, so now Joseph's employer threw him into the prison. He's back at the same miserable position in which he started the story. And that little line there at the end, so he was there in prison, exposes Joseph's apparent loneliness. The narrator would have us resonate with his dramatic downfall. This is where he is now. And the natural question to ask is, was God really with Joseph in this? Is this success? Does does being in a relationship with God really have any bearing on prosperity? And you won't believe what happens next. While in prison... Suffering for righteousness, experiencing retribution for doing the right thing, the moral thing. Stewing over the fact that evil once more has seemingly prevailed, the text speaks up again at the perfect time, and Joseph's rock bottom will be matched by another rise. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor and the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Do you see what's happening here? Even in Joseph's most desperate moments, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is still with Joseph, he's still showing him loyal, devoted, special love. When Joseph experiences the worst, God is still near. And God once again gives Joseph favor in the sight of powers that be. In this case, the warden of the prison. And once again, Joseph rises in influence. Do you see the parallels between the beginning and the end? The text again is going to emphasize, by the way, the totality of Joseph's reign in prison as Joseph was first in charge of all the prisoners, right? Responsible for everything that was done there. And then it says that the warden didn't express concern with anything that was under Joseph's charge. What was the key to Joseph's success in this new season of adversity? Was it his personal resolve? Was it his ingenuity, his can-do attitude? No, it was Yahweh's presence to bless and Yahweh making everything he did successful. Thus God's people would hear and learn that their success in God's covenant was ultimately up to his presence and his power. It wasn't a matter of optimism, luck, productivity, opportunity, ingenuity, or timing. It was a matter of His sovereign grace. A relationship with God. This is where all true success lies. 
So with slavery, the Lord was the secret to Joseph's success. Through temptation, the Lord was the secret to Joseph's success. And even in imprisonment, the Lord was the secret to Joseph's success. Friends, what's the point? The Lord is also the key to your success too. This is no one-off, no fluke, no isolated incident. Blessing, luck, fortune, favor. It is a matter of God's sovereign prerogative. The secret to success is nothing other than a relationship with God. You need to understand that the ordinary Israelite reading this passage would have arrived at no other conclusion. These accounts in Genesis of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph reinforce for them God's covenant promise to be with them, to be their God, to bless them, and through them to bring blessing to the world. This is what the book was for. Such success was and would always hinge upon the sovereign grace of God. So, let me make this simple for you. One, fortune, favor, blessing, luck, success, whatever word you want to use, comes from a relationship with God, the ultimate blessing, the blessed God. The most significant success is that of belonging to God, being a part of His people, a member of His family. And the only real curse, the only real misfortune, the only real bad luck, if you want to use the secular term, The most significant failure is that of being out of relationship with God, outside the community of blessing. This is what the text is about. But step two, a relationship with God comes on account of God's sovereign grace through His chosen representative. Let me say that again. If success comes from a relationship with God, we're asking the second question, well, how then do we get the relationship with God? Well, the original reader is going to come to this conclusion. A relationship with God comes on account of God's sovereign grace and through His chosen representative. You know, in the Old Testament, they looked to experience blessing through their connection to the patriarchs. They belonged to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But today, we look... (laughs) to enjoy our relationship with God through the ultimate seed of these patriarchs. The great fulfillment of the promises of worldwide blessing made to them, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, through Abraham, the world blessing would come, and said blessing would climax in the ultimate seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus now that all the families of the world shall be blessed. This is the way that Paul puts it in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles the outsiders, the people who were not in the family can be in the family through Jesus. And so I ask you, friend, are you in relationship with God through Christ? Having acknowledged the rightful curse of sin that rests on you for your rebellion against God, have you repented of that sin and relied upon the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for rescue from sin? Are you looking to Him alone to enjoy reconciliation with God? Are you sure that He is with you? If that be the case, if that is true, Let us then press the secret of success into the regular workings of our everyday lives. How does this benefit us? What are the benefits of this biblical secret to success? I think I'd phrase it this way. Embracing the Lord as the secret to my success enables me to embrace hardship, to ease pressure, and to enjoy Christ. I'll say that again. Embracing the Lord as the secret to my success enables me to embrace hardship, ease pressure, and enjoy Christ. What I'm telling you, friends, is that there are three benefits to divine blessing, to divine success. And those are embrace hardship, ease pressure, and enjoy Christ. Let me begin with the first. All who claim to follow Christ need to carefully define success in ways that allow for and embrace hardship or suffering. 
You need to understand that even though you enjoy the inevitable success of God through a relationship with him, it does not always look the way that people paint it. See, the idea that God is working solely for your immediate material and physical well-being is a lie from the pit of hell. Now, I want to nuance that statement. Listen to it carefully. The idea that God is working solely for your immediate material and physical well-being is a lie from the pit of hell. Now, I'm not saying that God isn't working for your material and physical well-being. I mean, that's what the, the new heavens and the new earth is about. There is a time coming, friends, where that is the ultimate end game. But it's not immediate. And it's not the only thing that he's up to. That is a lie. This defies the text. Joseph's enjoyment of God's presence to bless included both the pit, the prison, and the palace. God plots for our ultimate joy, not merely our immediate joy. Friend, if you're sick today and you're in Christ, or you're under-resourced, maybe you've lost your job in this, and you're in Christ, or maybe you're a homemaker and you're absolutely exhausted in this season, but you're in Christ, these may actually be the times that you're the most successful for him. In sickness and in need and in exhaustion, that may be the time that God is getting the most done through you. See, God's goal for you is to reflect his kind rule over creation. Where there is curse, it is your job in Christ to bring blessing. And this then requires, friends, that we enter into other people's suffering. And sometimes our own suffering is what opens the door. By Joseph, for example, experiencing this, I mean, horrendous act of, of forced slavery and subjection, he was able to be a blessing to Potiphar's house. And then in his subjection to that Egyptian prison, he would then, God would use that to, to use him, to exalt him to a place where he could be a blessing to the entire world. Friend, God puts us in, in these unique difficult seasons and guess what stuff is still getting checked off his to-do list for us it, things are still being accomplished the mission is still going forward and so though the road to eternal life has no toll booth the entry is still narrow and the road is still hard friends don't let anyone convince you otherwise refuse the lie that says that the road to heaven is wide and smooth Refuse the lie that your difficulty or struggle is automatically a sign of weak faith or personal sin. It may actually be the opposite. God has trusted you with this unique opportunity to show his blessing in a unique season. So when we understand divine success, it enables us to embrace hardship. We don't see it as contrary to success, but part of it. It also enables us to ease pressure. To ease pressure. Whether it be the pressure I place upon myself or the pressure placed upon me by my peers or circumstances. Friends, listen to this, and this is going to sound so anti-American. Success is not up to me or you. Faithfulness is my responsibility. Fruitfulness is his. And this will significantly reduce conflict, by the way, in your home and in your work. I've been thinking of this in my own heart of late. That the fruit of the Spirit is not effectiveness, but love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control, etc. I've even seen it in this season of coronavirus, my temptation to be frustrated with the way that the house looks because of the kids living in it all the time. Uh, my wife told me this meme the other day. It said, uh, cleaning your house with people living in it is like trying to brush your teeth while eating Oreos. <laughs> it's just impossible. 
And yet it's small things like that, isn't it, friends, that, that we're like, we have these expectations that the house will look a certain way or that the kids will act a certain way or that we'll make a certain amount of money or that we'll be at a certain position by a certain time and, and that like we're going to be in this life situation and we're going to have this much in retirement and then a situation like this comes along and we're thinking like, what did I do? I messed it up. But it wasn't you. Success wasn't up to you. It, it is his sovereign prerogative. He, he exalts and he debases. He gives and he takes away. But in the end, what he wants to happen with you is still happening. See, when I leave outcomes to his hand, it diffuses the anger and it relieves the tension. When I can acknowledge, hey, a global pandemic has struck the entire world, therefore my life doesn't operate the same way it normally does. And therefore, my habits have been disrupted. And therefore, my house can't be as clean as it normally is because kids are living in it all the time. It diffuses anger. It relieves tension. Like, God's going to have to change some things. See, the confidence that comes from resting in Christ may be the source of confidence that you actually need to excel in your home and your business. Friends, rest in the fact that success is ultimately God's sovereign prerogative. It is not something that you yourself can create. Don't buy into the lie. Sure, be faithful. But remember what Jesus said about those who serve him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus didn't promise you a vacation, friends. He promised you a job. A yoke is something that an animal wears to do farm work. But notice the joy of serving Jesus faithfully. It is operating under his gentle and lowly reign. It is good. Success is up to him. The harvest is up to him. The fruit is up to him. Faithfulness is ours. And then finally, when we understand the divine secret of success, <laughs> it enables us to enjoy Christ. Listen, we don't need for our joy and our fulfillment another book, another seminar, another video, although they can be helpful in their place. We have what we need in Jesus. Hear me, to succeed, you don't need a seed gift of faith or a special blessing from a televangelist. Sure, give to the Lord out of grace and not guilt and seek prayer help from legitimate church family and leaders. But at the end of the day, the secret of success takes the pressure off of us so we can find pleasure in Christ. He is that whom we value. Success is not inherent to you. See, the problem with the self-help movement and its religious cousin, the prosperity gospel, is that more, it is more American than it is biblical. After all, the whole self-improvement culture seems built for Americans, does it not? Uh, when we broke from Britain, did we not declare to be self-evident that we could pursue our own happiness? Self-reliance, social mobility, individualism, the search for success and pleasure. Our national ideologies parallel the goals of the laws of attraction. Like, like if we think about these things and if we like, think hard enough and that if we try hard enough and we're, if we're positive enough and if we have the right can-do attitude, we're going to awaken the giant within. The self-help movement and prosperity theology teach you to enjoy self. It points to you as a Savior, not to Jesus as the Savior. And therefore, you don't enjoy Him. I want you to, to compare this with the scriptural view of success, which is anything but individualistic effort. Divine success is a matter of divine enablement. We don't look to self to succeed, but we look to our Savior. In fact, the entire Christian faith exchanges an unworthy self for an ultimately worthy Savior. And by the way, friends, the religious division of the industry falls into this too. Don't be deceived by it. A careful listen to a T.D. Jakes, a Joyce Meyer, a Kenneth Copeland, a Joel Osteen, or a Paula White is nothing more than the power of positive thinking, self-actualization, plastered up with a few Bible verses. Ultimately, that movement doesn't look to Jesus for success, but it looks to self. 
the only thing, for example, standing in the way of your healing and your wealth and your blessing is a lack of personal faith often expressed in a lack of giving to their respective ministries. I want everyone listening to this to know clearly that the gospel of the prosperity movement does not save because it substitutes self for Christ. I think it'd be easy to prove this from the more eccentric preachers of the movement, but to crystallize the seriousness of this threat, let me keep my comments focused on the most widely accepted leader, Joel Osteen. There was this interview a few years ago between Osteen and 60 Minutes' Byron Pitts in which he made this error regarding the exclusivity of Christ exceedingly clear. So what Pitts does is he summarizes Osteen's teaching and his preaching, and this is Pitts' summary of what Osteen is preaching. He says, God is a loving, forgiving God who will reward believers with health, wealth, and happiness. It's the centerpiece of every sermon. To become a better you, you must be positive towards yourself, develop better relationships, embrace the place where you are. And notice what Pitt says. He adds this. There's not one mention of Jesus Christ in that. Osteen's reply, that's just my message. In maintaining so much focus on what we do as opposed to what Christ has done for us, the prosperity gospel, in effect, substitutes self for Christ. And in this system, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are not efficacious for salvation, but our own efforts, our own faith, our own attitude, our own works are. Friends, this is not the gospel. Paul said, I delivered to you what was of first importance, that Christ died for sinners. The problem is sin. The solution was Jesus. And that is where we find blessing, success, and prosperity. So, believer, brother or sister in Christ, I'll leave you with this. Here's your charge. Enjoy your relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. For this is the real secret of success. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clear disclosure of this text. Just looking at it even on a surface level shows that, Lord, you're sovereign over our successes. And so, where do we turn to succeed? How will we ever experience any prosperity in eternity or even fruitful labor here and now. It is only in relationship with you. And relationship with you only comes through your Son. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. And so teach us to treasure Jesus more than our own goals and ambitions and dreams and desires. And as we put Him first, I pray everything else will fall into place as you have sovereignly intended. We hold to the truth that when we seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to us. Whether they be perceived as good or painful, we know that you will give us everything we need. In the end, we win because we're on your team. So give us confidence in that this week, in this hardship, in this season. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.